Welcome to No Picks After Dark. It's your boy Nick Burke, and you are now tuned in to the hottest podcast in the world with Aaron Dante, giving you the hottest interviews with the dopest people, sharing their experiences from your neighborhood all around to the world. Voted Best Baltimore Podcast by you, the listeners. Now, your host, Aaron Dante. Yo, Aaron, talk to him. And welcome, folks, back to the No Picks After Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. Again, thank you guys for coming out listening to the show. I mean, the, the numbers are out of control with you guys listening. And, you know, I, one of the people I really want to credit for throwing their act on the show and being on the show is Mr. Ivan Martin. And I'm so excited to have you for the Ivan Minute. Go ahead, Mr. Ivan. What you got for us? What is going on? No Picks After Dark. Lovely seeing you all for another beautiful week. Hope you are having a great day as we go into this beautiful transition. Oh, yeah, I said transition, ladies, gentlemen, and beautiful people, because on the 20th, it'll be totally different, man. Things have changed. But what's so incredible is you start to see who your real friends are when you quit your job, you know? Because everybody asking for clemency, everybody asking to be pardoned. Of all the people, who would you think? Rappers, Kodak Black, Lil Wayne. Like, like, and, and now a lot of things start to t- start to make you know, these pictures that we've seen, all of this support we've seen, you knew you was getting locked up, and that makes a whole lot of sense when it comes to something else. Oh, yeah, our friendly politician, she is asking for some clemency. Catherine Pugh, let me read this to you. 2016 Baltimore Sun wrote, Pugh, a Democrat, showed deference to Trump, a Republican. At the start of her term, 2016 December, she pledged that one of her first acts as a Baltimore leader would be to write a letter to Trump. <clears throat> And she delivered the president elect during she delivered to the president elect during the Army Navy game at MT Stadium along with a Baltimore pen. The letter asked for infrastructure funding. Infrastructure funding. I thought that was real cool, because think about it. She creeped over to him like a nice old gangster and slipped that letter to him and was like, Hey, you in the city. If you want to get out, give me that money. And some years passed, and now she like, hey, 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 that little bit of money I asked you about, don't even worry about that. Don't even worry about that. Don't, uh, don't even worry about that. I need you to highlight my PO. Things have changed. Things have changed. Things have changed. And isn't it beautiful on a whole nother flip end? You end up saying something real wrong. And now what we got? We got over 100 racists getting arrested by racists. I have never seen in my life. And this is beautiful. This is what Martin Luther King asked for. This is the dream. Racists telling on racists. Isn't that beautiful? It's almost like, like, it's like, hey, I'm not so racist. To the point that I'll go down there and demonstrate my racism. But I am racist to the point that I'll tell on another racist person and take advantage of racism. I mean, um, redlining. <laughs> and if you do not know what redlining is, that is racism. Thank you very much. Please continue to enjoy this outstanding episode. Love you, Aaron. Hey, hey, Mr. Martin, where can we find you on Instagram, social media, all that good stuff? Comedian Ivan Martin on every single thing, including Black Planet. <laughs> and folks, we'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Visit your neighborhood sanctuary and do wellness for a luxurious experience for everybody. Treat yourself and a loved one with a massage, facial, or an entire day of pampering with our deluxe spa day packages that include lunch from the restaurant next door, firing rice. For more information, on booking or purchasing gift cards, visit their website at endowellness.com or call at 443-438-4048. They look forward to welcoming you and your loved ones to their beautiful new space at Soha Union, located at 4801 Harper Road, Suite 1. And folks, we are back to the No Picture Dark Podcast. I'm your host again, Aaron Dante. And I'm so excited for the Miss Natasha Axrod coming on, lawyer, legal expert, legal, legal contributor, coming on the show. And without further ado, Miss Natasha's minute. Hey, Aaron, uh, let's talk about Section 230 this week. This is a hot topic right now. It's come up in the context of big tech, and a lot of conservatives are claiming censorship by big tech. And uh, we've seen, you know, just Twitter, Facebook. And we've seen President Trump and another uh, number of other conservatives want to outright revoke or repeal this law. Joe Biden has also indicated he wants to revoke Section 230, albeit for different reasons. Uh, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have indicated there needs to be at least some discussion and reform. So 
I'm just going to give a little bit of information on Section 230 and what it means because I've seen a lot of misunderstanding out there, especially um, especially in the context of censorship. So first of all, Twitter, Facebook, these are private companies that are not subject to having to comply with the Constitution for the most part. And if people are angry about having a tweet of theirs deleted or they're suspended or banned from the platform, what many then are referring to is they're being censored. That's not going to be a First Amendment claim against these private companies. They aren't violating your constitutional right to free speech, even if overall what we're talking about is a kind of general concept of free speech. They're private companies. It's not going to be a First Amendment claim against them. Now let's get to Section 230. So 230 is a federal law. Section 230 is a federal law that's part of the Communications Decency Act that was written in 1996. So this is years before Facebook and Twitter really even existed. This is kind of still in the, I want to say I was still using Prodigy at the time and dial-up internet. If anyone out there is listening <laughs> remembers that, um, definitely just aged ourselves there. But so this was written a long time ago. And what it is, it's a federal law. And it's the reason the internet has basically become what it's been allowed to become today. Um, Section 230 provides immunity or protection from liability for websites like Twitter or Facebook, but also Yelp, Wikipedia. These websites are not going to be held civilly liable for content posted by the users of those websites. And this applies to interactive computer services. This is what the term the law uses. And so we tend to think of this in terms of only the big ones like Twitter, Facebook, Yelp, these big websites we all, all probably use. But this would also apply to any websites that host user content. So even a small blog that allows for user comments, for instance. And these interactive services, they certainly make it so that speech can be heard by giving a platform to users. And um, Section 230, though, says that these interactive services, they're not going to be treated as the publisher of someone else's speech. So the user poster of the content, though, would still be responsible for posting something illegal, for instance, or if you defame someone or business, but not the platform they posted on, unless there's an exception. And I always say people hate lawyers because we always say, oh, there's a general rule, but I'm going to give you some exceptions. And that's always the case. So there are exceptions here for good reasons, of course. Um, but, you know, criminal law, intellectual property claims, protections against sex trafficking, these are exceptions to these platforms not having any liability. Now, what about moderating content and these claims of political bias and conservative censorship? Well, the law also says that these websites can't be held liable for these decisions regarding moderation. And the law specifies this in the context of obscene, harassing, you know, objectionable content. And so Ron Wyden, he's a current United States senator. He was a representative back in 1996. He's one of the authors of Section 230. And he said that the law gives companies the ability to also moderate content and take down offensive content, even if that speech would otherwise be protected by the First Amendment, which, again, private companies can't violate. And so one of the purposes and intentions of Section 230, along with encouraging free speech and innovation, was to really encourage these platforms to police themselves. And this is what many consider to be a free market approach. If you don't like what a company is doing, you don't like how they're moderating, you can go to another platform. You don't have to use that platform. Um, but they have protection from liability for moderating, essentially, in good faith. So you see these websites have user terms and conditions, and these are the rules for using a platform. So if a user is suspended or banned or content is removed, it's usually because they've violated some of these terms, one or more of the terms and conditions of using the website. And then this claim that the big tech companies are not neutral and there's this political bias that President Trump has continually, um, con continually said and claimed, Section 30... Section two, oh my gosh, I can't talk today, Aaron. Section 230 does not require these companies to be neutral. So those are the basic legalities, Section 230. And it opens up the whole discussion, though, of the deeper problems. You know, the protections these platforms enjoy because of this law, it's allowed the internet to become what it's become. It's allowed these social media platforms to become what they've become. And that means good things, right? Connecting and meeting people and seeing old friends or connecting with old friends on Facebook is great. But then it's also meant a lot of bad things and potentially harmful things, especially regarding children. So if you repeal Section 230, as there's been a lot of calls and attempts to do, and you completely get rid of these protections, it really would change the Internet as we know it. And 
it can mean these websites pre-screen everything. So there's a likelihood it would actually lead to more censorship and curtail free speech. Or as Ron Wyden, the Senator Wyden pointed out, it could mean the company ceased to moderate at all. And I just, I have a hard time personally imagining websites like Yelp existing where they would be liable for defamatory comments that its users make. I mean, we've all been on Yelp and we see what people write on there. Could you imagine the platform being liable for all that? You just, you kind of, you really can't imagine that. And that's why, that's because of Section 230 that they're not liable for what users post on their website as it currently stands. This all leads to the point that this is an important discussion, um, including a lot of legal and ethical questions. How do we best protect society? And some people think we don't need to protect society. Some people think we only need to protect children, you know, but they're just these overarching questions of ethical and moral policy questions as well as legal. Um, How do we go about protecting vulnerable members of society, particularly children, while also facilitating a concept of free speech and people having an ability to freely express themselves? And so Section 230 is really just a part of a much larger discussion. Um, so that's today's minute, and I don't know how long that was, but it was way longer than a minute, Aaron. Yeah, it's, it's all good. <laughs> but it's an important topic. It's all good. I think it's a very important topic, and we really appreciate you giving this these jewels and gems for us to sit back and, and really think about. So uh, when people ask those questions about censorship, they, you gave them a little bit of answer. You gave them, gave them a little tidbit of uh, so they can look into them for themselves. Where can we find you on social media and whatnot? Yep, social media. I always say I'm not going to use it as much as I do, but we all do, right? Yes. <laughs> um, it's at Natasha underscore Axelrod on Instagram. And on YouTube, I am the legal blonde, Natasha Axelrod. And on Twitter, I am just at Natasha Axelrod. All right, folks. Again, thank you, Miss Natasha Axelrod, for coming on, lawyer, legal contributor to the show. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. This portion of the episode is sponsored by Maggie's Farm. Located at 4341 Harvard Road. Celebrate Valentine's Day at Maggie's Farm, featuring a three-course prefix menu for $55. Offering a unique menu for this special day that will include an amazing steak option, rockfish, handcraft cocktails, and many more delectable choices. Wine pairings for each course are available for just $20 more. Make this Valentine's Day unforgettable with Maggie's Farm Dining Experience. Open for dinner from 4 p.m. until 10 p.m. Wednesday through Saturday and serving brunch Saturday from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Check out Maggie's Farm on Instagram and Facebook for daily and weekly food specials. Hey, folks, and we are back at the No Picked of Dark podcast. Again, I'm your host, Aaron Dante. Today, I am so honored to have this guest on. Um, I've been reading back, I'm reading about this guest's company, the organization, and I'm just amazed of it. I really didn't know too much about these things until I did, did a little, did, you know, research. And I was like, I have to get this lady on. I have to get her on. She, she's moving, shaking, doing big things in Baltimore and all over. And I'm so honored to have Ms. Jean Allard on. How are you doing, Ms. Jean Allard? Good. Thanks for having me. Good, good. And she is the the founder and the executive director of the Samaritan Women. Tell us a little bit about this. Tell us a little bit about your company. What what you got going on there? The Samaritan Women is a nonprofit organization that was founded back in 2007 uh, when I was, um, in a crazy story, just sort of like plucked out of my corporate life to go do this nonprofit work. And it was largely driven by um, really God making me aware of a problem that I hadn't paid any attention to, that I'd ignored. And once I became aware of the plight of women and girls that were being exploited in this country, you know, it just made me so angry uh, that I was kind of shaking my fist going, you know, somebody ought to do something. And you got to be real careful when you start doing that, because then sometimes, you know, it's pointing right back at you. And uh, that was true for me. And so I sold my company and sold my home and moved to Baltimore and bought 23 acres of land and um, started a program that I didn't know anything about. And uh, so I call it my sort of free fall of faith. And, 
So from a mission perspective, the organization started with the focus on where is a place that these girls can go? Because that really was the impetus was I was meeting women and girls who were in this situation and it kept coming up. There's no place for them. There's no help for them. There's nowhere for them to go. And a real mindset that nobody wants to help them anyway. So that was the beginning was, can we create that place? Over the past uh, 12 years, we have morphed into an organization that has learned how to care for this population well, help to uh, move them from exploitation to social reentry. And now we're training other organizations how to do this work across the country. Because uh, honestly, Erin, the more we've learned about the issue, the more we've realized that there's an incredible deficit of care services across the United States. Wow, wow. So we'll get into your company. We'll get into it. Let's talk a little bit about you. We need to know who you are. We need to get people that get acquainted, get comfortable, get their popcorn ready, coffee, <laughs> whatever you're drinking. Um, so are you originally from Baltimore? Um, if not, where? You talked a little bit about you moved here. So give us, give us, let's listen to where you're from. I know that's such a Baltimore question, um, but I always have to respond. It depends on what time of my life you're talking about, because I've lived all over. Uh, I would say my, my was born in Wisconsin, um, spent some time in Illinois, then back in Wisconsin, and then lived overseas for a good part of the formative years of my childhood. So uh, mostly in Thailand and Iran, and came back to the United States for high school. So that was Illinois, uh, went to graduate school in Ohio, then moved out to Maryland, no, Virginia, then Maryland. Yeah. And that's where I am right now. So you and I have something in common, it sounds like. You probably might not know this. So I was born in Baltimore, Maryland. I moved to we, my family when I was younger. We moved to Youngstown, Ohio. Huh. Moved to Dallas, Texas. Moved to Syracuse, New York. Houston, Texas. Jersey. And back to Baltimore. So it's kind of, so I, I feel this, like me. This, this. <laughs> I, I feel your pain because you probably didn't have a consistent set of friends. You didn't. You always are you always are moving. You know, it's so interesting you say that because our first board chair for the Samaritan women is a Baltimore native, born and raised here. He's in his 60s. I don't know. Sometimes I don't think he's left, you know, the sort of Catonsville, Mount St. Joe bubble. He knows everybody. And it's so interesting to contrast our lives. Uh, because you're right. I don't, I don't have people that, I mean, I have people I've known of for a long period of time, but not around. And so the flip side is that's also made me really adaptable. And I think is part of why it was uh, easier for me to take a big jump because I've taken a lot of big jumps in my life. And, you know, when you're seven years old and your parents say, we're going to someplace, you know, on the other side of the world and, now I'm a little bit old. So back in those days, you had to look at the National Geographic to know what Thailand was, right? There was no Google. There, there, was, was, no, there was no Google. And, uh, you know, so that's the extent of what we knew about the country we were going to. So, but that instilled an adventurous spirit that hasn't quelled yet today. Nice, nice. So like, did you, like in your early, your early goals, did it include establishing a nonprofit when you were like just looking at jobs and you know you say you're your own company, you know, you work for corporate America. Did nonprofit ever like come across you and like, uh, I want to do nonprofit? Or you always thought like people always assume nonprofit, you don't make any money, you're just helping people. Just, you don't so you come from corporate America. This is corporate America nine to five, yeah. you know. Making did you money. Ever, yeah, did you ever think about that? Like, did it ever come in your peripheral when you were like studying, like I want to do a nonprofit or like, how did it all come together? No, there's times when I think my life parallels Forrest Gump, you know, <laughs> in terms of just where you land and how you go, how did I get here? Because, you know, as a kid from the sixties, I thought I would be a nurse or a school teacher. You know, that's, that, that's what a girl's going to be. And I remember my grandmother saying to my mother, uh, what is she going to college for? Is she just trying to get a better husband? Cause you know, that was back in the day. And uh, so I was planning on being a school teacher and I did a couple of years teaching school and the kids scared me. Um, and so it was frightening. 
And uh, so the, the quick bounce though, is that I went to undergraduate and then I went to graduate school. Then I ended up in the Washington DC area and my first job was with the CIA. So that wasn't a plan. Um, and I was there for a while and then I moved over to AARP and began running their technical services. Now that's hilarious given the fact that I did my master's thesis on a selectric typewriter and now I'm running the IT department, you know. So I took a, these luggable computers home with me to learn how to do this thing so we could turn around and teach everybody else how to do this thing. But it's been fun being a part of those changes in society too. You know, um, back, back in those days when the internet was just starting in the mid, early to mid nineties, you know, I literally put the AARP domain name on my credit card, you know, only I would have hung on to that, right? But, but that was back, you know, when, when people didn't know what that was going to be. So after AARP, I ended up uh, pitching an idea to a venture capitalist in the dot-com wave. And it was a, a software development. Uh, really, it was kind of a portal uh, idea, sort of before portals became a thing. And uh, so then I spent some years riding that wave of the dot-com world and you know, you should read into this that there was just stupid money happening back in those days. And uh, I left that company and started another company and uh, was really living pretty large down in DC and making a lot of money as a consultant and traveling a lot, going overseas because I felt like it, you know, it just... Uh, so it was really crazy, but it's all a lead up to this sort of big crash that I had, which I call hitting my wall of affluence, where after you've made enough money and been enough places and bought enough junk, like you kind of sit with this moment of, is that all there is? And it was right about that time that I had that collision of with the issue of trafficking, having met a survivor, and it just it rocked my world and it made all of these things and accomplishments seem pointless. Uh, and so, you know how the Bible says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And nobody rationally wants to do that. Um, it's kind of what happened. And, uh, you know, you have to, you have to let go of a lot um, in order to have kind of the empty hands to receive a lot. And that's, that's, Kind of my short story. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. This portion of the episode is sponsored by Found Studio Shop. Looking for unique gifts curated by an artist? Shop online at foundstudioshop.com and explore a delightful selection of gifts for Valentine's Day. Handmade jewelry, ceramics, cards, and more. Or pamper yourself or your loved ones with candles, gift boxes, and locally made bath and body products. All of this and more is available for shipping or local pickup at Red Canoe in Northeast Baltimore. Browse whenever the mood strikes at foundstudioshop.com. I like, you know, I love that. I love our audience can hear that. That's, I mean, wow, I'm blowing away right now. I'm taking over and we're taking notes right now. And where did you get your entrepreneurial spirit? Like, where does it, where does the entrepreneurial spirit come from? I mean, you said, you know, you, you, your, the background, your grandma's like, no, you, you, you gotta be this, you gotta be that. But yeah. somebody always pushes you to be an entrepreneur. Like, was there somebody in your family, a friend or a cousin or somebody that was like, or somebody, this is how you run your own business. You want to be your own boss. Yeah. Like you, and you were your own boss back then. How did you get that hunger? Where did that come from? Did you guys take it working for somebody, for somebody yeah. else? You know, I have <laughs> to give certainly credit to my parents because uh, a child of the sixties, um, even though I had this sort of grandparent influence that was more stereotypic, my parents were very modern. You know, my dad listened to the Beatles and probably smoked marijuana and taught art. You know, I mean, he was very, he was very progressive. And, uh, and so when they had a girl, you know, they were committed that a girl can do anything a boy can do. And so they were going to make sure I knew how to run the lawnmower and, you know, wasn't always in the house washing dishes, you know, and so it was, it was a very balanced and very empowered way of growing up. Um, but I have to say that a big part of it is just how I'm wired because, you know, I, I tell people this because it's the honest truth, but uh, 
in second grade, this was my report card from my teacher. She literally wrote on the report card, she's a lovely girl, but she keeps taking over the class. Uh-oh. And you know, so there was just something built in that said, I can. And, uh, and so there's just been a lot of occasions in my life where I've been able to say, just because I haven't done it doesn't mean I can't do it. And that's been a really great message. I have to say that, you know, when you begin to look at your life in retrospect and see the pieces knit together, that's a big part of why working with this population who's been so beat down, who've been so disempowered and thought to believe that they're nothing and they have nothing. And then along comes this person who's just been able to take advantage of opportunity and make opportunity her whole life. And I can breathe that into others, you know, that I can literally see this gal who's had no advantages in her life whatsoever, but no, there's still something she can do and become. And I think that's kind of the counterbalance is almost as if, you know, God said, I got to have the ultimate Pollyanna, you know, who's going to breathe kind of new life into uh, the spirit and, and, and hope of these women. So it's, it's been a pay it forward for me. I love, I love, I love hearing this. This, this is great. This is a really good content folks. And again, I'm just honored to have you on the show because I want our listeners to learn something new, you know, something different and be unique. So the Samaritan women, let's talk about that. You founded that in 2007. Can you walk us through like the, like the mission, like, you know, about getting it off the ground. Like when you were telling people, like, I mean, to me, when you say you sold everything, yeah. you sold everything. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, wait, 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 you sold everything. Yeah. And you moved to Baltimore. Now, why, that's, that's a two part. Why Baltimore? First of all, why Baltimore? What was your calling for Baltimore? And two, Talk, take us through the, take us through the process of like I'm starting this nonprofit. I'm going right into it. Let's make it happen. I mean, to me, that's that makes me nervous because it's like I'm just leaving my whole life, starting a whole new life over again. Take us through your mind, like as far as why Baltimore and then the mission. Well, you know, Baltimore wasn't it wasn't a choice. I had moved up here for work when I had uh, started with that dot com company that was based here in Baltimore. And so I had moved up here for that purpose to work on that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I got connected with this church group that does street outreach in West Baltimore. And uh, that gave me another view of the city and of the world. And that's where I had that fateful encounter with Heather. And so there was a lot of, of circumstance that said here. And then, frankly, stumbling around 23 acres in the city, which is rare, right? And I was able to acquire that property. Uh, that pretty much confirmed for me, this is where you're planting. And so that was, I would say, just a series of alignments that led to it being based in Baltimore. But it's been incredibly helpful uh, to be located here because of the proximity and the movement of anti-trafficking. You know, there's a fair amount of effort on the East Coast for this. And so I've been able to connect with some good people. And being close to Washington has also been really helpful uh, to the initiative. So I can't say that that was, you know, my plan to be in Baltimore. Um, when I started the organization, we were we really had uh, the, my colleagues and I that I kind of talked into this crazy scheme. Uh, we had no idea what we were going to deal with in terms of the ladies, uh, but we had some real clear ideas about what the environment and the outcome. You know, we believed very much in education as a pathway out of exploitation. We believed very much in um, having economic security as a way of building up resilience from some of the temptations and, and uh, vulnerabilities that these young women have. Um, but we were not at all prepared for the amount of psychological, spiritual, emotional, relational damage. Uh, we, we didn't know that we were going to deal with women who could be 28 years old and function like a 13-year-old because they didn't have access to the same kind of instruction growing up or they didn't have the same kind of support or schooling. 
And so it's been a real lesson for us in studying the population. And I'm just so grateful that the women make amazing teachers. You know, I think if you, if you look at nonprofit work as a reciprocal work, it's as much a work on me as it is what I can do for them. Um, they have taught me more than I could ever imagine um, about life, about relationships, about spirit, about community. Uh, so I would say the women have been my best teachers, uh, even though I'm crazy rabid about academics. I'm always pursuing a degree because I always got to know stuff. Uh, but then, like I say, my biggest teacher is right in front of me. The No Picks After Dark podcast is fueled by Zeke's Coffee. Have you tried their coffee yet? I'm telling you, there is something different about it. Maybe it's because they roast their beans in a fluid coffee roaster, which provides the most accurate roasting temperatures and made with love. You will just have to check it out for yourself and try their delicious food while you're at it. Open now for curbside service, carryout, and delivery. And they also do wholesale. Visit Zeke's Coffee at 4719 Harper Road. Open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Sunday, 8 to 5 p.m. Kitchen closes at 3 p.m. Or visit Zeke'sCoffee.com and you too can be fueled by Zeke's. So what are some of the services that you guys provide for trafficking victims? What are some of the services you guys provide? Yeah, so certainly residential care because homelessness is a big part of their reality. And so having a place where they can be and be comfortably and be safely was chief among the responsibilities. We learned over time that um, certainly medical issues, a lot of these women have all kinds of medical issues that have been neglected for years in many cases. And so medical services and securing those, that's where being in Baltimore has been really helpful because we've got so many sobriety programs, addiction programs, free uh, homeless healthcare programs, uh, pro bono dentists. And, uh, you know, it's harder for the shelters that want to plant out in these rural areas because we advise them, no, you're going to need a whole network of services. You know, in Baltimore, you can't throw a stone and not hit a hospital. So, but we're very fortunate because of that. Right. Um, and so gathering together the community-based services were super important you know, having access to uh, the community college system has been hugely valuable because one of our survivors actually, very quick story, uh, we were just inside the city line from the county line and we were zoned for one community college and not another, but we're real close to uh, CCBC. And she wanted to go to that school for the program, but it was going to cost three times as much because of out of county. Well, this enterprising young woman in 23 years of age actually went and testified before the House and before the Senate on why we should, uh, why Maryland should make it uh, waived for them to have the out-of-county price increase for tuition. It was unanimously passed in the Senate and the House, and so Maryland's one of the few states that allows trafficking victims to go to college uh, at the same cost, regardless of where you're located. So that's been another huge advantage of being here. Uh, and also people who are willing to listen to what the needs are for these survivors. And you were dry, you were, you were spitting fire this morning. You were really giving us fire and giving us, showing us, educating. We, I feel like I'm in church right now. I'm about to drink some water. Hey, we can change you, stuff. Uh, we just have to have the will. We can change stuff. I love it. I love, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm loving everything I'm hearing. I'm, so happy again to have you on the show. This is this is, folks, buckle your seatbelt. This is this is a really good show. So tell me a little bit about like I didn't know that DMV had a big problem with sex trafficking, human human sex trafficking. I didn't know that um, because you always hear on the news it's happening in Thailand, like you no, know, like Thailand, you know, over that way, and you always hear like, well, it's not. It definitely if it doesn't affect me, I don't really care. If I don't see it. I really don't care. How, like, I mean, how educate the audience about how big of an issue this is in our immediate backyard yeah. that we don't even know about. Help, help us out with that. Yeah, what I can't give you, and I would venture to say nobody can give you, are precise numbers because we're talking about an underground, under the radar, operates in secrecy kind of, of criminal enterprise. But that being said, we have to look at some of the factors that make the DMV area um, ripe 
for exploitation. So some of those factors are, is you've got affluence and poverty in close proximity. We've got high drug traffic in this corridor. We've got the I-95 corridor running up and down the East Coast. So there's a lot of mobility. We have a lot of transients. We have uh, a lot of pockets of nationalities in this greater area. So what all of those things add to is when you have, for example, affluence and poverty in the same area, you're ripe for exploitation, one to the other, right? We have pockets of different types of trafficking because sometimes of those ethnic concentrations. Give you one quick illustration. So if in Prince George's County in, and in Anne Arundel County, if they have a higher incident of, let's say, um, Hispanic-based brothels, but all of the law enforcement personnel are African-American or Caucasian, they're not in an undercover way going to be able to penetrate those cultural barriers, you see? And so there are ways in which certain forms of trafficking can flourish because we don't have effective means of intervention. So that's why some of these demographic factors make this a very ripe area. I would say the biggest one, and you hear this reinforced by the women, is economics. There's a tremendous amount of money here in close proximity. I always say to folks, we always think, oh, Las Vegas, right? We must go to Las Vegas because that, yeah. But if you go one hour, two hours, three hours out of Las Vegas, you're in the desert. You're nowhere. You go one hour, two hour, three hours out of Washington, and you could be in Richmond, you could be in New York, you could be in Philly, you could be in Baltimore. And these are all centers of affluence. And so the ladies will say, it's much more effective to come out to the East Coast because you can hit all these areas literally in a week. Wow. Yeah, I never thought of that. I never thought about that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I never thought about it. Yeah. Vic, I think about Vegas. It's opportunity. Right, and it's demand. It's a dense population on the East Coast. That's right. That's right. So, how can we do better as a society, becoming more aware about the signs of human trafficking? Well, gosh, that's such a big topic. I'll I'll start with my wish list. My wish list would be that we would be having conversations with our children, uh, and not cupping our ears and pretending that they don't know about this stuff. Because, oh my goodness, what kids have access to on their phone, on their phone. We've got kids 11, 12, 13 years old who are producing pornography themselves through camming, through various websites, and who's speaking into their lives and talking to them not only about the moral side of this, but frankly, the criminal side of this and the, and the exposure side, of the risk side of this. So we have to be having conversations with our kids. Now that's never to say it's the victim's fault because we have to understand that trafficking starts with a demand. But aren't we growing more demand if we have in the United States, the average age of introduction to pornography for a boy is seven years old. So by the time that kid and the average age of first purchase of a prostituted person is 21. So between the ages of seven and 21, if that young boy is being marinated in a particular way of looking at women, a way of understanding sexuality and personal entitlement, then it just makes sense that that was what comes out on the other end when he's 21 and off to college and there's tremendous opportunity. So I think we have to go upstream and we have to be speaking into the lives of kids. It always, uh, bears heavy on my heart that 70% of our women grew up in fatherless homes. And so I'll speak right to you, Aaron, and everybody who's a listener of yours that is a dad. You have no idea how critical you are in the destiny of your daughter, and I would say, and your son. Um, but the girls that we have served who grew up without dads were looking to fill that hole in their heart and it just so happened that a nefarious person filled that gap and said, you can call me daddy, but we're going to have a deal, right? And that's not being a dad. And so they're desperate, desperate, desperate to have that relationship in their life. It's just there are so many predators uh, available. 
and, and, and our technology facilitates access to that. So I think, you know, uh, people stepping up and getting into the lives of vulnerable children. You know, we're talking about the State Department reported that of the trafficked kids in America, 60% of them came out of the foster care system. Well, what if we didn't have kids in foster care? What if all kids had a forever home and parents, right? So it's building up a resistance, building up a resiliency in kids, but also the enculturation that says human beings are not for your consumption. One of the things I found fascinating in studying the foster care phenomenon a bit deeper was that a kid who grows up in the system, institutionalized or bounced around in foster care in the United States will have 11 placements by the time they turn 18. So in a kid's mind, that's like 10, 11 families that didn't want me. So you're always looking for somebody where, who wants you, where you can belong. And so does it surprise any of us that kids would gravitate towards gangs or pseudo familial structures like trafficking environments, right? Where they call each other wifeys and the family and things like that. So it makes sense. So we could be going upstream, as I say, and doing something about these problems instead of just playing whack-a-mole on the end, on the other end. Wow. Yeah. I, you, yeah. Wow. Speechless about a lot of this. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking about my childhood growing up. I'm thinking about the other friends childhoods growing up and it, you, you're right. It starts when they're young. I, I like that a lot. It starts when they're young and you know, you're saying the access to the internet, everybody has access to it now. Right, right on your hand. Everybody has a phone and just having access to certain things. And I, that, that is, that hits home a lot of different ways. And I'm glad you explain that to the audience. I really do. I really appreciate it. Well, that. and I'm not advocating that we do away with the technology. I can't say that I kind of made, made my fortune on IT and then all of a sudden disavow it over here. But I think what's missing is teaching the discernment on how to use these tools, how to use these tools, because kids have a much higher risk quotient now than they did when I was coming up because um, there wasn't as much exposure. And so we have to we have to teach our kids how to use these tools. What makes a friend, right? Is swipe left, swipe right? Is that really a relationship? You know, um, we, we, we have to be involved in their decision-making and then the tools become true tools. I like that. I like that. So tell the listeners what the Samaritan women are doing for human trafficking month. So we've got a couple of things going on throughout the month. We're doing a campaign called light the darkness. Now this is a national campaign. And essentially what we're doing is trying to raise awareness about what services are available to survivors across the U S but where's the deficit of care. Where's really those sort of dark zones where there really aren't resources. And we have a map on our website that shows where the services are and where they aren't. But we're inviting people to do something kind of crazy, uh, use your imagination, and we're asking them sometime during the month of January, find something that you can light up. So I will admit that we did sort of light up a few of our staff. We did kind of wrap them up in, you know, lights and had them dance around in video and just be silly. But there's uh, all kinds of things happening. For example, down in Washington, they're lighting up the National Harbor Ferris Wheel every Friday during the month to kind of make the statement. So we're asking people to go to our website, the Samaritan Women Light the Darkness, forward slash light the darkness, and to sign up to do something. It costs nothing. You can be as creative as you want to, um, but hashtag light the darkness, post that on social media, get people talking about this issue and see what kind of buzz we can create nationally on this. Then on the 27th, we're gonna have a uh, four hour simulcast where we are gonna hear from advocates, survivors, victim service providers across the country um, about what they're doing and where the opportunities are. So that's gonna be on the 27th of January. It'll start 6.30 Eastern time and then it'll go across the four time zones and we'll be doing a highlight of what's happening across America. I'm excited. I'm excited. This episode will be out before that. So. Great. Great. Join us. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I, I'm, I'm excited. I want to take a tour of the place of, of, of your, of your office. I want to know. I definitely. I want to come over there and just, you know, when you can fit us the small people in for like 10 minutes, all we need. <laughs> We'd love to. 
Um, so you, you explain all the events that's going on. Um, where can we donate for, you know, and help out for programming and things of that nature? Because I, right now I'm very compelled. I'm like, is there a GoFundMe? Is there like somewhere I can click on? I mean, just to help out just because now I'm learning about it. My listeners are learning about it. You know what? It may inspire 10 people to donate. $10, that's a hundred dollars. Yeah. But again, yeah. where can we go to do that? Sure. I mean, we certainly appreciate that. The Samaritanwomen.org forward slash give forward slash donate. You can go uh, and donate directly. I think that's uh, easier and, and best to go directly to the agency. But I do want to say this. It is so important that we as a community uh, realize that we have to help these folks get a start. It's such a myth to think that the women and boys are, uh, boys and girls are getting any of this money. You know, that's not the game. The game is it all goes to daddy. And so they come to us with nothing. And it's up to us to give them the kind of start uh, that they need to go to college, to get their GED, to get their first job. So we thank you for the financial support. We do all of the, what we do for over a hundred women, uh, all based on charity. Oh, that, that's amazing. And is there, a, do, they, do the women stay on campus or do you find a place for them or a house for them to stay in when they're, when they've left the person that was watching over them, quote unquote. Yeah, so we've taken survivors from across the United States, 22 different states have sent us survivors. So they come from all over the place. We actually have three houses and depending upon their phase in the program, um, I'm happy to say that two of our ladies just got their apartments. One just got engaged, very exciting. Uh, another one just got a college degree. So we're seeing some really exciting outcomes on the other side. That's, that I love. I love hearing that. That that is beautiful. And like again, like I like to highlight businesses and organizations in the community of Baltimore. And what you're doing is outstanding. And, and salute to you. And a round of applause. As the young people say, "Yeah, I give you your flowers." And what that means is giving your crap, your your props. <laughs> so that's what the young people tell me. That's what they call me. But so rapid fire. We're gonna do something really fun. Rapid fire. We always do this at the end of my show because you know we take the gloves off now. We can kind of find out who what do, what do they like to eat what kind of things they do okay so who's your favorite author c.s lewis okay c.s lewis okay lying which in the wardrobe right is that right is that c.s oh, okay yeah. okay yeah. who is your favorite music artist james taylor okay crab cake or lobster <laughs> um i do i add to that as a baltimorean um whatever whatever you want to do <laughs> Or are you not? Are you not a seafood person? Not so much. Can I go with like cheese tray? Yeah, I'll do that. the cheese tray. Okay, cheese tray. Okay. Do you eat flats, drums, or boneless? Those are wings. Ooh. So the flats, are flats, the drums are the drums, or boneless? Boneless, spicy. Okay. Super spicy. spicy. Okay. Blue cheese or ranch? Blue. See, we 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 went in right now. There you go. Blue cheese. I, I'm all about that. <laughs> People say rant. I'm like, oh, we are in the show right now. I can't do no rant. <laughs> okay, so you don't. So see if you're not a seafood person. I'm reading right now. I'm reading okay, into it, a little bit. It's good. It, it's good. I, do, you eat? do you eat meat? Sure. Okay. All right. So we'll 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 switch up this question. Best steakhouse in in the area. Oh, I don't know. That I don't know. Okay. 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 Yeah. Best restaurant. Best restaurant you like going to? Oh my goodness. I like so many. Um, it depends on my mood. Uh, one of our board members uh, owns uh, Ida B's. Um, I like Cafe Mezzanote down in Anne Arundel County. Um, I like, you know, sometimes I like to just roll up my sleeves and kind of go diner. That's awful fun. Ooh, not the wrong diner. You no, know, that's good. Um, gosh. Uh, Ocean Air downtown. I don't know if that's still there. That's delicious. Um, what's the one on We're Franklin getting... Street that is the? Uh... Oh, now it's escaping me. Uh, you're talking about? Um... Yo Pepe's. That's my favorite restaurant in Baltimore. Oh, sorry, top five favorite restaurants in Baltimore. Yeah. They have this thing, the best sangria. That I mean, uh, that's just me, sangria, and yeah. they have this thing. It's not even on the menu, and it's a lobster tail with stuffed crab, stuffed shrimp. It's, ooh, I'm getting hungry right now. Thinking, <laughs> thinking about Tio Pepe's. That's one of my favorite spots in Baltimore. All right, favorite city to visit? 
because you've you've traveled you've traveled so i know you have a place that you can go to right now you'd be like if i go you can snap your fingers right now where would you go okay okay there you go for me it's like i like going i I like greece i think greece is the ones like the islands it's beautiful yeah uh Knows, I would uh, say, just, just uh, yeah, the island of Patmos would be my getaway. That would be my getaway from everybody would be Patmos probably or Bali. Um, okay. But city, Rome. Yeah, Rome, okay. What inspires you every day? My faith. My faith. And what is the best advice you've ever received? Don't take yourself too seriously. You were off the hot seat. You were off the hot seat now. (laughs) Gene, how can we find, again, let's let's plug all the, because a lot of my listeners are on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. I don't, there are so many daggone things right now, but where can we find you on So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Let's go with those top three. Where can we find you guys? Yeah, so we are certainly on the web at thesamaritanwomen.org. We're on Facebook, The Samaritan Women. Um, we are not on TikTok. We are on Instagram, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's all that. So I just want to make sure our listeners know where to find you guys and celebrate what you guys are doing and highlight the things you guys are doing for the yeah. Baltimore. Yeah, for Light the Darkness. We'd really appreciate that. There you go. You, you heard it here, folks. You heard, heard it here, folks. And I'm so excited again to have you on the show. And folks, thank you for listening to the No Picture Dark podcast. Love, peace, and happiness. We're out. Ladies and gentlemen. Attention, everyone. We interrupt this song for a very important announcement. Get it, get it. Beautiful.